Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain here, back with a good friend, Dr. Duke Pesta. We have done a breakdown of a wide variety of artistic subjects, but we are no longer going to confine ourselves to one single work of art or one single genre. Now we're doing the three big letters, A-R-T, top to bottom, back to front. There's nothing you won't know about art when we're done desiccating this language. So thanks a lot for taking the time today. Hey, Merry Christmas to you and yours, and thanks for having me. And you. So just uh, before we start, let's uh, tell people a little bit about FPE USA. Freedom Project Academy is an online school, kindergarten through high school, fully accredited. It's an alternative to the spin and the ideology of public schools, uh, and it is fully classical, and so it's a really, we're getting lots of good kids into college, and so it's something you want to look at. We bring, we bring the education right to your home through the computer, so it's a good deal. Good. All right. We'll put the links to that below. So you have spent your life dissecting art. I have spent my life butchering art by creating it. So we have two perspectives that uh, I think are going to be very important. So uh, I know you've thought about this often, of course, throughout the course of your career. We decided to do this topic some months ago. Why don't you start us off with this is like this old cartoon. I think it was a New Yorker cartoon. There's this guy painting in an attic. Guy walks through the door and says, hi, I'm art. I'm what you do everything for. Anyway, so what are your thoughts on art? Why on earth is it interesting? Why is it compelling? Why are we so fascinated by it? And what possible purpose does it serve to believe the lies of creators? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think I love the way you the way you ended that, right? The idea that we believe the lies of creators, and um, I think that uh, the the idea of art that I want to focus on to begin with is go back to Plato, and you, and as you're a philosopher, right? We ask the question: Why did Plato basically exclude artists? from his republic, right? What, why has there been this uh, seeming divide, particularly in Western culture, between the philosophical rational and between the creative and artistic? And so to me, it's a, non, it's a non-issue. It's not really a problem, and I think Plato's got it exactly wrong. Um, uh, one famous artist once said that art is the lie that shows us the truth. Right. And what he meant by that is, is that fiction, right? Most art is fictive, right? We're creating things. We're mirroring that sculpture isn't really a living body. It's a carved body to mimic reality, right? Painting generally seeks to, ca- to, to capture certain aspects of reality, but it's not reality itself. The fiction writer who tells great truths in a fictional novel, made up characters and plots, still conveys a tremendous amount of truth, even though those characters have never existed. And to me, it's the, it's the literalist argument in reverse, right? We talk about religion, and uh, a lot of us roll our eyes when we, we, we see people of any religion being so dogmatic and literalist that they've b- boxed themselves in to textuality, right? We kind of roll our eyes at that. But it, those same people who do that, who, who mock the, the Christian fundamentalist for that, will then turn around and take the exact same platonic argument about art, right? So, utterly literalist, because your art is made up because the characters are fictional. You're lying. When we all know that imagination is one of the, if not the great thing that separates us from all other animals. I mean, you and I have talked about this a lot, too. I think art, my final statement, opening statement, I'll throw it back to you, is that art to me, in the, in the, the, the focus of all of this, is that one thing, I think, that we can definitively say is not accountable for simply by biology or evolution. I think there's something more to the art and the artist uh, that, to me, points in a direction beyond just materialism. Okay, so so this is the annoying paradox that is so absorbing, which is why do we have to have people who lie to us 
to tell us what's important. This, you know, suspension of disbelief should be for Democrat impeachment hearings, not for mm -hmm. the most essential aspects of life. And yet we are so enamored of, I think, illuminated by, and I think often these days, really distracted by art, right? I mean, now we have like more art coming at us like this giant tsunami, right? I mean, you got YouTube, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Apple TV, you name it. This, this show, this is, this is a whole, whole exception to the entire trend. We have so much art coming at us, and I'm not sure that the art has more truth in it now than it did in the past. I think it actually has less. And it's more about distraction and dissociation and the consumption of empty hours. You know, this awful phrase, binge watching, uh, which is kind of like junk food for the brain. So I think that we have to sort of talk about what art is for, well, what it is and what it's for, and what's going on with it now, which is, you know, is a whole a whole separate thing. So if you were to try and crystallize down the definition of art, uh, what would you say? I want to say something to the first thing you said. I don't believe art is actually a lie. I think that we have rational brains and we have an imaginative capacity that what, what the literalist will call the lie of art, people lying to us, isn't a lie at all. I would argue that the truth of art is a bigger truth. It's not a lie at all. It's a truth that is uh, it freed from its empirical chains, right? It is purely an imaginative form of truth, which means uh, we, because you, if I mention to you a, a mythological creature right now, if I met or a, mention a satyr to you, you've got one in your head, right? There's Danny no such, got it. <laughs> there's no such thing as a satyr, but there is in our mind. And to me, right. that's a high, so, it, so it's not a lie. It's not a lie at all, though, when the, the, the poet is not a liar. And I go back, my definition, if you want to make it really basic, I go back to Keats, right? Beauty is truth and truth is beauty. That is all you know on earth. And all you need to know. Uh, I, you, know I, you know that just gives philosophers facial tics. Like I right, know it yeah, does. Right now. I know I'm it does. I'm getting that little, little twitch going on there, full-on Eddie Murphy style. All right. Okay, so the way that I would sort of try and build the conversation, at least from my side, is this. Play is common to certainly mammals, right? You think of, of lion cubs uh, practicing uh, and, and little baby kittens practicing stalking and, and lion cubs practicing their hunt and so on, right? So... To me, art is a form of play, but play is something in theater school that uh, 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 an acting teacher told me. He said, play like children play, which means really, really seriously. And I thought, ah, that's really, that's really freaking deep, man. I guess I've a lifetime working on that one. And so I think this concept or this idea of play is really important. And in fact, of course, not to get overly, you know, semantically uh, astute, but, you know, it's called a play. You know, it's uh, it, the, all the world is a stage and all the men and women are really players. So I think play is really important. Now, why do lion cubs play? Well, they're practicing, right? They're practicing the hunt. When you think of the two most popular games for children when they're little, one is hide and go seek and the other is tag. Well, hide and go seek is the predator is bigger than you are. And tag is go catch a prey that's smaller than you are. Right. So this is sort of foundational. To, to human beings. And I think this form of play as a preparation for essential moments in life, I think is really, really important. And I think that aspect of things, do you say, do you say to the lion cubs, well, there's not really a tiny antelope that you're chasing, you know, and, but it, it wouldn't make any sense to them because it's like, well, we're not, we're not, we're not chasing air. We're not playing like roughhousing with each other. We're practicing for adulthood uh, of lionhood. And so we can survive and, and feed and feed our children and all that kind of stuff. And I think that aspect of art as an essential preparation for adulthood, for life, for the difficult choices that we want to be prepared for and don't want to invent 
our answers in the moment, I think is really important. It is. And I think that also makes the point that I made prior, right? That you don't say that the child is lying when he's chasing, these kids are playing, they pick up a stick and they play cops and robbers, right? They're doing the tag, they're doing the hide and seek. We're not, you wouldn't say that the lion cub is lying, right? You would say that the lion cub is practicing, like you said. And I, to, to go back, I, I also think there's another component of this on top of what you just said. It's not just play and practice. Children have a certain capacity that the older and the more rational our minds get, we lose. And I would call that wonder, the ability to wonder. Not, no one wonders like a child, right? Look, you, you spend all this money on Christmas toys, and, and the kid is endlessly fascinated with the box for four hours, right? What he can make of it, what she can make of it. I go back to, 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 to quote the Gospels really quick. I think Jesus was exactly right. When Christ suffered the little children to come to him, I think it was an artistic moment, right? That there's Jesus doing the heavy work of teaching and preaching adults. A couple of moms shows up with babies, right? And the disciples like, he hasn't enough time for this garbage. Leave him alone. And Jesus waves the children forward, puts them on his lap, and he says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must enter it like a little child. And what he meant by that is not peeing yourself and drooling on yourself. He meant the capacity of children to be able to see good in things, right? Things that you and I take for granted every day, things that we've seen our whole lives. A child's first look at that. Uh, the ability of children to love people even when we're ugly, even when we're full flawed and tainted. I think Christ's point was an artistic point, that if there is such a thing as the kingdom of heaven, you only get there if that ability to wonder, to see through the illusions of life, to see through the, the vanity and the wickedness of the world, and still have, for lack of a better word, faith faith in human nature, faith in people. Children have it. I bet you, your audience, I'm, I, could, I could tell you the exact moment as a little child when I began to lose my wonder, right? Uh, it was, I, my parents were getting divorced. I was about uh, eight years old, I guess. And we were, I was sitting in my bedroom and they were in the basement fighting. And they didn't know it, but everything they were saying was coming through the vent and I was listening to it. It, what, is it the moment your grandmother died? Is it the moment your, your, your puppy died? Everybody could point back in their childhood to when they sort of separated, right, from that wild-eyed believability into a much more cynical way of seeing the world. And I think that uh, most artists have that. They have that ability to wonder in ways that pure material reality seem to pull you away from. And there's a, di a, a divide there. Or it's funny, you know, that pops into my mind when I went to I went to Camp Bolton for a couple of summers when I was in my early teens, maybe about 12 or, or so. And I remember picking up broom handles that were just lying there, obviously no brooms, and, and tossing them to another kid who was a little bit older and saying, on guard, you know, like, <laughs> let's let's sword fight. Right. And the kid kind of did one of those snarky, you know, Draco Malfoy sneers. It's like, don't you think you're just a bit old for this? And I remember thinking like, ooh, what if that's true? <laughs> you know, what? If, ooh, that's not good. And then I also remember thinking kind of ferociously, it's like, and I said to him, like, okay, exactly when are you too old to have fun? And, and that's sort of an important question. So there is that pressure, you know, and this is, again, this is from the Bible, right? When I was a child, I thought and acted as a child. Now I'm a man. I put away childish things. And there's real value in that. But in terms of that sense of wonder and curiosity, the great challenge of adulthood is certainty without dogmatism, right? You want to be certain of things, but you don't want to be in denial to new information, new arguments, and so on. In other words, you have to be certain of principles, but uh, open to new reason and evidence. And 
Art's relationship to that is really, really interesting. And I'll sort of give you an example. So I do this call-in show with people. And uh, it's funny, you know, because I run this philosophy show. And I would love it if people were like, you know, well, you know, Kant's approach to metaphysics, I think, is somewhat problematic. Let's debate that. And and I get like one in a hundred or one in a thousand of those. And people are like, I'm lost in my life. I feel no, like I think it was 89% of millennials feel there's no meaning or purpose to their lives, uh, which we'll get into how does a society survive in the absence of stories. We'll, we'll sort of get to that. But people want to talk about their histories. And I'll ask them questions about, you know, their childhood, their upbringing. And they'll I'll ask them questions about, let's say, their mom, right? And they won't have any answers. And I'll say, okay, let's role play. I pretend that you're the mom and I'm you, right? And these are people with no acting training, right? They've never done anything like this before. And listen, like 99 times out of 100, boom, it's in. It's on. It's like actor studio level interaction as far as all of that goes. And you can say, well, that's not really your mom. And then they have access to all of this information about their mother. And this empathy for their mother, whether it's sympathy or not, is another matter. This empathy for their mom, I'm role-playing as them. I don't know them. I've just met them. You know, they claim to not know much about their mom. And then, boom, you're like, they just open up this whole vault of information just through an act of imagination. Now, of course, I'm not them. They're not my mom. It's not a real interaction. But by gosh above, is there a mountain of truth in there? It is. And I think, you know, if we try to boil it down to anatomy somehow, I think when you've got consciousness and you've got uh, imagination, that's what's required of art. And that's what's so unique about the human animal, right? There's no other animal has, that has those two concepts, right? Utter consciousness of what we are, right? And then imagination. You put those two things together, I think you get art. And what, what ultimately is art trying to do? I go back to what Keats said, right? That ultimately art is a, is a, are, is, are beautiful ways, even if they're tragic ways, beautiful ways to show us basically the archetypes, behind our individual experience. And the idea of an archetype, right, whether you're talking at it from a Jungian perspective or you're talking about it from an artistic perspective, the idea of archetypes, that only human beings can recognize archetypes. And, of course, God is the supreme archetype, isn't he? And so um, I think that you all the things that we would consider metaphysical, and I honestly would place, place artistic achievement in the metaphysical category. Because what it's doing is it's using raw materials of an empirical world, right? They're using a materialist, all art is based in some kind of materiality, right? Whether it's a play script, whether it's a, a piece of marble, whatever it is. So it's a way of taking the material, the bound material of our existences, and transmuting it into something that supersedes. And Shakespeare's right, right? That, it, that he wrote sonnets as he, as he promised his love. He wrote sonnets that will exist to the end of time. Time, even if the paper they're written on is incendiary, right, is burnt up, or, or if it, the tombstone gets dusty and you can no longer read the name on it, you will, you will live in this poem, he says, and live in lover th- and thrive in lover's eyes. So art has the, it promises us the eternal. That's what Keats said, right? Something beautiful that's not decayable, right? Something eternal that is then truth about our archetypal experiences above our animal bodily realities. Right. So I was also thinking, it's really, really well put, and I want to touch back on that, but I wanted to just, sorry, to wrestle things, to wrestle the wheel, but I was thinking w- with regards to art and its purpose, and if it's, if it's play. So you think of a boxer, right? Like a boxer uh, trains for years, usually before the big important prize fight, right? So there's a huge amount of training, and it comes down to like five or ten minutes in the ring. Now, it's the same thing. Think of how much play lion cubs have before they actually chase a zebra or an antelope or a, whatever it is, right? 
it's, you know, a hundred to one, a thousand to one, perhaps, right? And so to me, there are moments in life that are so essential and you don't want to walk into them unprepared. You don't want to get into a boxing ring having never trained. I mean, you're just going to get really badly hurt. And so I was sort of thinking, okay, well, how has art really helped me in my life? How, what's sort of the empirical evidence? So uh, I, I read, uh, of course, a lot of Dostoevsky when I was younger in, in my teens and a lot of Ayn Rand. And there is a really strong focus, maybe it's a Russian thing, or a strong focus on integrity and independence from material gain. For um, uh, Ayn Rand, it's to do with the uh, reason and evidence. For Dostoevsky, it's to do with the purity of the soul. But you have to resist earthly temptations for the sake of purity of, of spirit. So then, after I'd read this kind of stuff, my first year of university, I wrote a play, a short play, and I met a woman who worked for a, a, a big, the, well, the biggest radio station in, in Canada. And she really, really liked the play. And she was offering, she offered me, I remember sitting in the car in the parking lot. We, we'd gone out for like to talk about the play. I didn't realize I was kind of having a me too moment because it was a, a big, big, real early back then for me with this kind of stuff. And I remember she, she said, you know, I'll, I could get this play produced for you. Like I could get this on the air, it could be heard by millions of people, you know, and maybe we could meet at my place tomorrow night to discuss it first. Like it was one of these. And, you know, I mean, I was a pretty naive kid, but I wasn't that naive. Right. So it was very, very clear that I had to date her or sleep with her or whatever in order for this project to move forward. That was like 100 percent clear. Now, if I hadn't, I mean, I sort of think about that fork in the road because, you know, I thanked her and got out of the car and and did not take that. And, you know, that could have been a big changing moment uh, uh, in my life. I could have put me on an entire different career path than where I went. But it would have been obviously gross and corrupt and, and all. I don't know how people do this Me Too stuff and, and get out of bed the next morning. But that's maybe because they haven't read enough Dostoevsky. I don't know. But, and so for me, I think that the art practiced integrity, showed me the effects of integrity. If you look at the art of corrupt people, in Shakespeare, in Dostoevsky, in Rand, there is such a horrifying moral decay that comes later. And this is like the Christian story of, I want to show you what hell is, not because I want you to go to hell, but because I don't want you to go to hell. Like whatever that, if you believe the hell is after the life or just the, the torture of the soul separate from the divine or from virtue. And so the amount of practice that I had in integrity through art, I didn't get that in my family. I didn't get that in my school. I didn't get that in Warner Brothers cartoons, I didn't get that from Bugs Bunny. I got that through art. And in that moment where I was in the ring for the first time, tempted with material gain and fame and maybe even lots of money for the sake of compromising any kind of decency in sexuality, that art, like a crusader army riding over the hill, saved literally my ass from, from that situation. And that amount of practice, it's like, yeah, okay, I, I, a thousand times I rehearsed integrity or saw it or witnessed it through art, the way that the lion cubs play, and then I could take down the zebra of temptation to really make it in a <laughs> convoluted metaphor. And I think that practice was really important for me in that moment. I think what you just said, the way I would phrase it is, art is philosophy for everyone. In other words, not everyone can pop Plato open and get something. Try, like you said, you brought up Kant, right? I, I don't even think Hegel knew what Kant was talking about when he, invited, he invented Hegel. In, I don't Hegel. think Hegel knew what I Hegel was talking Exactly. Philosophy is hard. Try teaching philosophy to a group of modern college seniors. They don't know how to think it. But you know what everybody can do? They can watch Hamlet. 
kids who have no philosophical background whatsoever, they're moved by the story of Hamlet. The great Renaissance uh, art critic, Sir Philip Sidney, the great Sidney in the 16th century, he said the one thing that, that he, he was trying to adjudicate, which was the greatest, philosophy, history, or literature, art. And he said the problem with history, he said, is that the historian is limited to what actually happened. Right? So in the 16th century, you know, the historian goes back and looks at what's there, but he can't invent things if he's a good historian. He can't create circumstances that history hasn't accounted for yet. That was the limitation of learning from history. He said the problem with learning from philosophy is, is that philosophy tells you what to do. And unless you're in- incredibly acute as a thinker, it doesn't move you. Right? For most people, philosophy is cold right? Philosophy is dogmatic in a way. Philosophy is, is a set of precepts and rules. And that's hard. It's hard, to, particularly for younger people, it's hard to tell people, go out and do what I say. It's much easier to move them to want to do it. Art has the power to move, right? And art is like giving people a, the philosophy with a teaspoon of sugar, right? That philo- artists can be every bit as philosophical as philosophers. You've read Dostoevsky. There are few philosophers who plumb the depths of human philosophy the way he does, but he does it in story form, right? I mean, even Plato, even Plato recognized that to sit there and just write from the first person philosophical perspective wasn't going to work. So he invented interlocutors, right? He actually created dialogues because he intrinsically knew that it's more pleasing and it, 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 it's more palatable for us to take our philosophical lessons through stories than it is through lessons. That's why you have much better chance of raising your kids to be good kids if you read stories to them that have morals than rather you give them lectures at bedtime, right? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, and there is a very strong relationship between reading fiction and developing a empathy. Because, of course, the amazing thing about fiction, and this is true in Shakespeare with the soliloquies, it's even more true in novels, where you literally can enter the mind of another person and experience what they experience, which they have never vocalized. And, you know, it's that old saying, you know, we we read to know not only that we're not alone, but a novel is a chance to try another life on for size, Mm -hmm. that we can go into the mind of someone else and experience life from that person's perspective, both the writers and the characters, particularly, of course, if it's a first-person novel or a soliloquy from Shakespeare or other writers, which, of course, is the same transcription of thoughts, usually considered to be without manipulation. Like, it's our private thoughts are usually not manipulative, and therefore the soliloquies follow that same pattern. And that idea that there's self and other, you know, we really do have to grow out of the monstrous, glorious narcissism of infancy, right, where our needs are all that matter, and then we have to start focusing on other people to have successful relationships, And art really does train us to step out of our own mind and to step into the minds and thoughts of someone else, someone of a different race, someone of a different sex, you name it. And that is an enormously powerful. I remember reading um, The Edible Woman by Margaret Atwood when I was quite young. And I just remember like, okay, so this is, I mean, I'm not saying it's what all women think, but this is a very popular novel for women to some degree, I mean, by a woman to some degree for women. So I can really step into this and say, okay, this is how I get the same thing with the stone angel, which I found an incredibly moving book to read uh, and uh, other, other things, other aspects of things where you go, okay, I can't be a woman, but I can read the thoughts and minds and characterization of a woman more so than I would get out of something like Simone de Beauvoir, who's lecturing me about womanhood. I can actually go into the experience of that, and learn what it's like. And that, of course, 
you know, if you're if you're married to a woman, it's kind of important that you understand women and not just give up like Freud did. And and a way to do that, of course, is to read what women write about. And no, of course, there may be some manipulation in it, as there is with male writers, but it's a window into something that you're just not going to get in general conversation. I'd go a little bit broader than that. I think you can learn a lot <laughs> about <it>. broader <laughs> broads. <laughs> you, you could learn a lot about women by reading the story of Lady Macbeth. It doesn't even have to be necessarily females creating female characters. Great right. artists, regardless of gender, no, right? I mean, when, when Shakespeare creates Anthony, Cleopatra, when he creates Rosalind, when he creates Lady Macbeth, he's engaging in something. That, one of the reasons why people 100 years ago believed that maybe it was Queen Elizabeth who wrote Shakespeare's plays is because the women were so real. No man, they argued, could understand women that way. And that's what an artist is, right? It's that ability to project yourself into the minds of everybody else, right? To, to have empathy, to see through, if you're a man, to see through the eyes of women or vice versa. And it gets even bigger than that. Leo, to Leo Tolstoy, speaking of the Russians, Leo Tolstoy once wrote, art must destroy violence. It is the only thing that can, Right? And his point there, I think, was is that the the what you said that ability to see from other eyes. C.S. Lewis made the great observation: "I read," he said, "because I want to see through other people's eyes. I want to have a a, a, a window." Right into other people's experience. He was arguing that the postmodern critical tendency, even as early as 1960, was, was turning art into a mirror. And this is one of the big problems we have today. We've so politicized art now. We, we started from the premise in the postmodern era that nothing is true, that there are no absolutes, therefore morality itself is relative, therefore we, we, we can never really understand each other. And you see what those philosophical premises mean to art. It can't exist. So in the modern world, particularly at the universities, what is art? It's become only politics, right? All the aesthetic, all the metaphysical, all of the spiritual, all of the universal that art was created for is now no longer accessible to us. And so what do we've got? We've got only the political, right? It, so in other words, we're now telling kids, well, men can't understand women. Women can't understand men. We need women's studies classes for women, and we, we don't have the men in them. We, we have to have separate dorms for blacks and white and separate graduations. This postmodern anti, uh, this postmodern relativistic way of seeing everything is the death of art. Um, and mm. you had asked earlier in the beginning, why is art so corrupted now? And I think it's because we've lost, you need the metaphysical for art to make sense. If you deny categorically any, I don't even go anywhere near God, but any aesthetics, if you deny the possibility that there is such a thing as universal aesthetics or that there is such a thing uh, as a metaphysical aspect to human, the psyche, right? This, uh, uh, call it a spiritual dimension. If you deny all those things, then art becomes just a, another piece of material, it's materialist property, cultural materialism, right? That's all it is. So you look at art not for those uplifting universal values, but you look at art for examples of racism or bigotry or anti-feminist spirit. Uh, and it, and the, the way to sort of get my mind around this, too, is I look at the long history of communism, and I look at the, so the Nazis. And the funny thing about the communists who were around for 70, 80 years in Russia and the Nazis who existed for about 12 years in power anyway, and I, I say, you know, it's funny, neither of those two cultures produced any really serious art. I mean, uh, the, the greatest artists of the, of the Soviet period were all expats, right? Mark Chagall or uh, Solzhenitsyn. These weren't communist writers producing communist art. And the Nazis produced no art. Their, their architecture is utterly sterile and derivative, right? The Nazis went around stealing the great art of other peoples, better cultures, right? 
and hoarding it for themselves. And I think when you think about the aspect of communism and Nazism, particularly communism, it starts from that premise, right? That there is only material reality. There is nothing spiritual. There is no God. The churches are driven underground. Uh, All of that what we would call uh, artistic or spirituality is verboten. And all you have is this really remarkably materialist take and it produces bad art. And when you think about the degree to which our modern universities have sold out to socialism ideologically, are we surprised that the universities are turning the great artworks of the Western culture into nothing more than agitprop for four or five left-wing advocacy ways of reading books? Well, that is, that's a very powerful thing. And I remember when I first, the very first day in theater school, we went into the the uh, head of the theater school's office, and he said, well, aren't you all very young, white, and bougie? Which I guess shows you all about the sort of leftist approach that he had to life. And agitprop, which is basically it's, it's agitative propaganda, right? It's, it's really naming the leftist art for what it is. And true art is the pursuit of truth, but modern art is the pursuit of power. And that is a very different thing. The pursuit of truth brings us together, right? And the complexity and challenges of integrity versus acceptance and uh, uh, virtue versus self-destruction because uh, you know i mean i think jesus taught us that sometimes the hot pursuit of virtue doesn't have a particularly positive end at least for the individual and so we have this great challenge of life very great complexity of life which true art brings us together and has us discuss those issues but the art that is going on these days is all calculated it's all political. It's all about, well, we don't want to anger this special interest group, and we don't want to upset this particular group, and we don't want to be attacked by these. And it's all very defensive, and it's all very propagandistic. And I remember when I was a teenager, I think it was early to mid-teens, there were two movies that came out. One was um, The Day After, which was uh, a TV movie about what happened uh, after nuclear war. Another one was a thing called Threads, which went years after and it was a huge cultural event, and everybody – I remember a friend of mine was writing uh, in his uh, journal, uh, oh, and so now it's the day after the day after, and everyone's suddenly informed. And I remember watching these shows feeling really, really angry, more, more so than just the idea that you know, jerks across the world could push a, push a button and we could all cease to exist. But I felt very manipulated and controlled, and I wasn't sure why. And it wasn't until somewhat recently that I found out that the day after was basically KGB propaganda, part of the Cold War, to make – uh, Europeans and, and North Americans so frightened of nuclear war that they might disarm. And it's all just, that's not, that's not the pursuit of truth. That is the pursuit of control and political agenda. And it dehumanizes, right? So the true art brings us together. But art that seeks to control and manipulate is the erasure of the other. Rather than fostering empathy, it fosters contempt, subjugation, and dominance. You know, every time I open a, a read a movie review, the very the very first thing I always read is political. Right, this film has no minorities. Right, another um, a collective cast of all white people. The way the critics review art, right, is purely along political lines. Which means what? Art adapts now to the critics. Right. Art is adapting to that, just like in the same way that art is adapting to what the universities are saying is valuable. And what the universities are saying, what the critics are saying, what's valuable are these very, very materialistic ideas of diversity and inclusivity uh, and, and multiculturalism. And so we've already sold out the people whose job it is to look after art, have betrayed it. I had a professor in grad school who once I, I asked him, you know, I'm going to be a professor myself. I said, I trusted this guy. His name was Seth, a uh, very brilliant guy. And I asked him, so what, what is your take on what we do here? And he said, you know, 
I consider myself the guy who opens the door of the museum and walks the people in and points out the great art to them. I don't see myself, he said, as somebody who determines what is or isn't art or who lectures people or who, who politicizes art. He said, our job is to expose kids. And I believe this profoundly. My job is not to politicize them. I teach, I'm a professor of English literature. I teach art every day. It is not my job to teach them the proper political stance to their art or to criticize the artist because he was white or praise him because he was not white, which is what they're doing on the campuses right now. My job is to allow kids to give them the tools, right, the, the contextual, the historical, the aesthetic tools to understand what the artist was doing in his or her time. We've lost that completely now. It's why English departments are – it's why the humanities departments are dying. Why would you major in humanities? When the one thing we've got going for us is this huge artistic legacy of truth, and then we're telling the kids none of it means anything. We're telling the kids that what we do for a living, what we went to graduate school for 13 years to teach, is now just a culturally materialist bit of propaganda from this or that reign or rule, right? We have destroyed the humanities, not the sciences. The scientists are busy doing what they ought to do. God bless them. They're, <laughs> they're pursuing scientific truth. We're pretending. Think about the degree to which English departments are morphing into communication departments now. History programs are becoming political science, as if you've got historians in lab coats now, right? What the hell's the difference between history and political science? Nothing. You're just conforming to a world that seems to find truth only in scientific empirical ways, so you're selling out the humanities. The humanities, by definition, are not to be seen as empirical. By definition, if you hold, the, the if you hold art to an empirical scientific standard, Plato's right, then it's all just bullshit, However, you wouldn't demand the – human, the humanist would not demand of science the opposite, right? The artist would not say to the scientist, you have to become artists or we're not going to take you seriously, right? And so that's the problem, I think. We live in a culture where the progressives on every walk of life have bought solely into the materialist understanding of reality, which means art, they, they can't even comprehend the idea. And I think it scares them. It scares the progressives that most of the great books that have ever been written have been books that have dealt in some way with universal truths. And so all they can do is tamp those down. Well, of course, the, the you know, I have my criticisms of, of the right with regards to art, but I will say this about the left, that the universals bind us together and their purpose is to sow division, animosity, and hostility between the races, between the genders, between between the classes, and so on. And so everything which touches everyone goes against the leftist agenda of fomenting uh, endless social battles over inconsequential differences. So that is one of the reasons why, of course, in the long march through to the institutions, they definitely targeted art. Because if I can read, say, some writer from Ghana who's struggling with his marriage or parenthood and say, you know, yeah, you know, I, I've seen people like that. I can appreciate some of this kind of stuff. Well, we're, we're bound together. We're in a common march of humanity, despite differences that may be relatively unimportant. We're still both human beings who, who have to get up and brush our teeth and deal with the challenges of the world. But of course, if you can just make art fractious and just make everybody discontented and frustrated and, and counting the, the, um, the skin tone of everyone in the background, it's like, well, we've just lost that which is supposed to bind us together. And then we really can't have a culture. We can't have a community. We can't have a country. Uh, we just have these warring tribes of incompatible interpretations. Yeah, and the other side of that coin, the exact flip side of that coin, is how the left pretends that they're democratizing art, right? 
Art is whatever you say it is. Art is purely subjective. Art, everyone's an artist, right? The, the, the five-year-old who scribbles, who makes fan prints with finger paint, that's every bit as artistic a document as what Picasso did. And so you see what else they've done. Not only have they stripped art of its universal connectivity, right, that which brings us together, they're pretending that they're being Democrats when they're doing it. They're tell- that they're somehow by making art something that we're all artists now, right? Bullshit. We're not all physicists. We all can't be philosophers. We certainly all can't be priests, but nor can we be all artists, right? This idea that anybody who does anything, even remotely creative, is an artist is nonsense. I mean, we're, we can all and should all play at art, right? Like you go back to the, your first premise. That's part of who we are. But to make no distinction between little children playing art, right? and adults making real art is the same thing, right? It's this idea, well, there are very few child artists, right? With all due respect, the child children are playing when they're playing with art. There are very few child drawings that we would say pass the smell test when it comes to art, right? There, uh, there are no baby lions that take down actual zebras. Exactly, yeah. but much better said. And so this, I, this I, is equally destructive as the idea that art cannot speak to anybody but ourselves. It's purely subjective. More as dangerous or more dangerous of th- than that is the contradictory statement that we're all artists, and and the left makes both. These progressives make both, and no one ever points out to them the the the, the logical and philosophical impossibility of both of those things being true. <laughs> but there's another thing too, which is there is a chilling lack of creativity in in modern art. In so far as I mean, I'll watch it because I do reviews, and I think it's important to know where the zeitgeist is. But you kind of know what's coming up. You know how people are going to behave. You know what their perspectives are going to be. There's very little that is surprising uh, because surprising these days brings shock, brings attack, brings people trying to destroy you. You know, like this is really, really tough for people. And again, not to sort of bag on theater school, but since that was sort of the last time that I got serious, well, I, I took a very, very important writing course later on. But in terms of like that kind of art, I remember the first two weeks we were there. It was kind of confusing because we didn't seem to have any classes. And we were supposed to create a, a show, like the, the first-year students create a show for everyone else in theater school. And I remember sitting down with the teachers. And I was there for most, – most of the students were there for just acting. I was there for acting and playwriting. So I was expected to write something, and I wanted to because what I was there for, right? And – I remember the acting teacher said, I've got a great, or the, the, the teacher said, I've got a great idea, Steph. You'll do found art. And I'm like, what now? And he's like, okay, so this is found art. So what you do is, you know, go downtown. This is in Montreal. Go downtown and find graffiti and take the words from graffiti and turn them into your art. And I'm like, what? <laughs> What are you talking? Said you know, or it could be a complex billboard, or it could be a sign, or it could be. And it's like, I said, listen, with all due respect, I'm not doing that. I didn't come here to garbage pick other people's syllables and pass them off as some massive exercise in creativity. I, I came here for my own voice, my own language, my own words. So you know, with all due respect, you know, and I was nervous to do it because you know I'm I'm new, and but I'm like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna write something that I think is important, like. Thanks. Or, you know, and he's like, no, you really should. You really should. And it's like, but why? Like, why why would you want to limit me to words that I find on the street in terms of the message that I want to give? And that's not creative. And also, you know, where he told me to go, 
you know, graffiti and stuff, it's like, well, that's not even like maybe he could say, you know, pick 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 a page of Shakespeare and assemble something on the words there. But no, it was like graffiti and, and just trashy, crappy stuff, you know, and it's like I'm not going to do the equivalent of, of, of taping a banana to a wall and calling myself uh, Angre. My niece goes to Baylor University, which is one of the foremost Christian colleges in the country. And she had a freshman art history course. And the very thing same, she came home t- lecturing us about how graffiti was every bit as artistic as the Mona Lisa, right? That the, the, the drum beat she got, they took a, one semester, one, the, the entirety of Western art in one semester. And they spent a good two or three weeks of that semester talking about how graffiti was the equivalent of any other kind of art. That's what they're teaching them now. Uh, think about the Star Wars, the, the clown show that is Disney. They can't figure out now why every subsequent movie, w- when they're telling you, right, they made Landau Calrissian poly- polygendered, right? And uh, Billy D. Williams came out and said it was a big mistake to do that, right, in the, in the previous movies. Now they're guaranteeing this new one, the, this new movie coming out, the one that they're planning to make now, they're going to make sure that there, is a, there are gay characters represented. The directors and the, the writers are all saying this now. You are starting from a premise there that is utterly unartistic. You are starting with the premise, we have to make a movie that is sociologically relevant, which means by definition, it's not going to be artistically relevant. Think about the first Star Wars movie. I was in 1976. I went to see it. I was a little boy. And the, story, the original Star Wars was so uh, generationally defining because it was an archetypal story. Darth Vader is the dark father, right? He's not black. He's not white. The, ma- the characters were all iconic fairy tale archetypes. Well, he took he, it straight out of Hero with a Thousand exactly. Faces, right? Lucas took it straight out of Joseph Campbell. I think he even consulted with it to make sure that the archetypes were – he was straight out of Jung, right. straight out of Campbell. I mean he plugged right into the central mains of the collective unconscious. Yeah, and, and fast forward 40 years and now we, we, we are incapable of seeing those things anymore. We just see that the cast of, of, uh, of Star Wars was all white and the only black man in the film, James Earl Jones, wore a mask, right? This is all we see now and I, it shows you how since the – 70s, we have completely transformed the way, and this is the, this is the influence of socialism, right? As socialism has infected the arts, as socialism has infected the universities, as socialism has infected the entertainment community, now simple fairy tale. I, I watched your review of Frozen. I mean, and that, that movie, the second one, Frozen 2, it, 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 it has, it's consciously walking away from what made the first one a fairy tale, right? Now, all of a sudden, in the second one, to leave the men behind. The women can't be women until the men are left behind, right? To go on their special separate quests. And so, and you look at how many of the modern Hollywood fairy tales have completely walked away from what a traditional fairy, you, you've got to have, let's paint with all the colors of the wind, right? You've got to have a kuna matata. You've got to have now every different ethnic group has their own similar fairy tale. And, and what you're doing is, is that you're so sociologically, as you said, gerrymandering what art is for propagandistic purposes, and you're not letting the real art speak for itself. Here's another thing I think that's really important to art, which is I think it's a backward-facing time capsule from over the horizon of middle age. And what I mean by that is I regularly get into, quote, trouble on Twitter, right? Uh, and, And because I sort of point out that the lessons now that I'm 53, which is Still kind of shocking to me at times. You know, I was just at the uh, store the other day, and in two years, I qualify for a senior's discount. Ooh, <laughs> it's an exciting time in life. But, you know, the, 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 um, the compensation for, for getting older is, you know, all of this 
annoying, sometimes accumulated wisdom, right? So I'm old enough now to have seen the arc of people's life choices, right? Because I've known some people since we were in our early teens, and I have seen the cause of the beliefs and the effects of the life. Like, what do people believe? How do they interact with people? And how does that play out? And I've seen, you know, I've known some women who were like, oh, to heck with kids and so on. And, and I never want to have children and I'm not going to invest in the youth and all that. Like, I mean, I know you don't have kids, but you certainly, certainly invest in the youth. And there is a sense of emptiness, of course, when you get over the hill, so to speak, particularly for women. There's a sense of emptiness, which is why there are so many childless women, particularly the number is almost the same percentage of childless women and percentage of women on antidepressants. And there is no art to, that deals with that. There's no art that follows the life of a woman that's that, that you know, kind of slept around a lot when she was younger and was a woo tabletop party girl. And, you know, then uh, got into the rather desperate scrabble of the mid to late 30s, maybe trying to nail down some guy to start a family with. But she's just left with the detritus and the divorcees and the people who've been, you know, pillaged by family courts. And and then she kind of sails on and gets into otter and otter hobbies and more and more cats. And, you know, you, you could see that story arc. And that's a story arc that's embedded in the lives of like 25 percent of people of women in the West. But you can't see that story. No, nobody. You write that story and it would be incredibly powerful. It would do incredibly well, but it would be you'd be incredibly punished for it for a wide variety of political reasons and so on. Right. And so this when I sort of go on Twitter and I say, you know. Particularly to the young women, it's like, OK, you know, you're you're having a blast. You're in your 20s, your peak sexual market value. Guys want to ask you out and it's 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 really fun and all that. And I get that. You know, it's a, that's a tough party to walk away from. But you got to remember 40 to 90. You know, the ages of 40 to 90, that's a long time. <laughs> you know, 20 to 40, 20 years, okay, 40 to 90, that's what, two and a half times that, right? So that is, you got to remember and plan for the second half of life. And this is something that I got from you, right? The first, first half of your life, you struggle, you expand, you grow, you, you fight for your stake in the world. Second half of life, you got to consolidate, you got to dial it back a little, you got to enjoy your relations more and your hobbies and all of that. You just can't keep burning the, the adrenals at both ends for your entire life. And so the funny thing is, of course, there's so much propaganda about, you know, youth is everything and party till you drop and it's better to burn out than fade away and don't trust anyone over 40. And, you know, all old people are prejudiced and bigoted and sexist and probably racist and you can't listen to any of them. And, of course, they'd want to disconnect youth from their elders so that they're more easily programmed by their rulers. Right. That's sort of the basic equation. And so when I on Twitter send these messages to to people, which I, you know, I mean, there, but for the grace of God, go I. If I hadn't had a few influences in my life, I could be one of these people who, you know, mind or, or milk youth until the whole pleasure of life toppled over like a <laughs> evacuated cow. And so when I pass this back, there's this all this deep shock and horror and appalling. And what are you talking about? And this is weird. And you're creepy to talk about these things, all this stuff. And it's like, but aren't used to fulfill that function. Aren't used to send back the regret of King Lear to young people and to middle-aged people saying, no, 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 don't take your children for granted. Don't milk your power all the way into dotage. Like, have empathy and allow your children to raise up to be somewhat more equal to you in your age rather than dominating them like your toddlers, which will only foment rebellion. Like all of these, you know, Shakespeare, the absolute master of intergenerational conflict, was able to send these messages back and humanize us and have us make better decisions before it's too late. 
to make those great decisions, scaring women with, well, you know, you got 50 years without a family if you don't have kids and you don't have a loving husband and all these kinds of things. And they get really scared. And it's like, well, yes, that's sort of the point. That's why when I was a kid, they had these commercials, which was, you know, um, last night I really went out and tied one on, you know, which is an, an analogy for drinking. And it was a picture of, of someone with a toe tag on because they died in a drunk driving crash or, you know, seeing the guy smoking with the hole in their throat or or, you know, all, all of these 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 warnings, you know, like this holding up the diseased lung of the smoker saying don't smoke, seeing the effects that you can't see because of youth and, you know, like the, you don't see over the horizon. You don't necessarily have much access or respect for the wisdom of your elders. But the artist can send these messages of the effects of life back to the course and have you change that course. And that used to be the function of priests to tell you to be honest, to maintain the Ten Commandments, to worship Jesus, to love God and virtue. So you don't end up like so-and-so. This is all the medieval morality plays that were incredibly popular. This is um, all of the 18th and 19th century novels about women saying, don't fall for rakes. You know, get a guy who's solid and reliable. Don't fall for the flashy, uh, you know, guy from Fifty Shades of Grey because, you know, the fact that he's got a helicopter doesn't make him any less of an abuser. And and this message from beyond the horizon of middle age, boy, whoosh, it's it's just almost completely cut off. And now... The only people who mean anything is Superman's father, who, who are old, who, who blew up with Krypton. Sorry, yeah. that's a long rant, but that was no, sort of my... That, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of the, sh- of the program how a huge number of millennials don't think there's any reason to stay alive. We have taken the myth from them, the, the mythic nature of life. Tolkien was, was someone who really talked about this a lot, that mythology, what he called mythology, the way we speak about our lives beyond ourselves, that that is what endures. Nothing else does. That's truth, he said. You know, Your life and my life are rapidly going away. But as I tell my kids in my Shakespeare class, he's been dead 400 years. And you here you are in a modern classroom reading what he said. And you know what I said? Now that you've got past the these and thous, he makes sense to you. What he says about love, what he says about loss and death, it resonates with you, doesn't it? And they have to agree it does. And I said, in 400 years after you'll be dead and everyone's forgot who you and I are, they'll still be reading this. There is an immortality to that that is universal. And um, so you, know, you, th- you think about the nature of this kind of stuff. What Tolkien once said really kind of moved me. He said, we create because we are created. There can be no other argument for it. That's his argument, okay. right? That we create because we were created and because we create in our own small way the way the creator created. Right. And, and I think that's right. If there is a creator and if that creator is God and God is the one who brought us together and God is the one who f- who took uh, chaotic matter and ordered it. Right. And 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 uh, if, if this is the, that's what we're dealing with here, when we create the best creation mimics that creation. And for a long time and you know this down through Western culture, down through at least the 20th, the early 20th century, the purpose of art was primarily to hold a mirror up to nature. Right to show us in a different format what reality is. Let me, if I, you know, indulge me here. One of my favorite poets is Robert Browning. And you know, Browning wrote a, one, a number of really beautiful dramatic monologues. A single character going on for 700 lines, all you hear is him. My favorite is Fra Lippo. It's about a Renaissance painter, right? Here's how Fra Lippo, in, in Browning's dramatic monologue, here's how he described art. He said, don't you know, we are made so that we love first when we see things painted, things that we have passed perhaps a hundred times and never cared to see, and so they are better painted, better to us 
which is the same thing. Art was given for that. God uses us to help each other. So lending our minds out. And so his point is that, you know, you walk past the daisies in your garden every day. You don't pay attention to them. You got to get to work. But somebody paints a daisy in a beautiful impressionist way and, and, and you hang it on your wall. We, we, Browning says we really do see, see reality first through art. Right? Those things in the real world that we're, we see every day, and because we see them every day, the sun coming up, the sun coming down, we don't notice them anymore. But when you, an artist can take that reality and provide it for us in a form that then we can look at and see, that's what art was made for, Lippo says in the poem, right? We're made that way. It's a, beautiful, ah, it's a beautiful way of understanding it. I mean, you know, that art was made for this, lending our minds out, that part of us that's not simply anchored to anatomy and death and physiology, and lending our, our, our minds out to each other so that we can see things that otherwise we see a thousand times and never notice. Well, that capacity to remind us of the essential nature of death is to me, you know, the great enemy of life. And this, this goes back to another book we're going to discuss at some point, um, uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, uh, The Screwtape Letters, right? It's really vivid. And you know, it's funny. Um, a person in my life, this is the only book they ever gave me, and they turned out to be quite corrupt, and I didn't see it at the time. And they gave me that book almost like an angel forced them to in a way, you know, <laughs> warning me about, about the danger of, of this person. But in, in that, C.S. Lewis writes about how the great temptations are usually not grand but petty. You know, how do you, how do you make a man corrupt? Well, you don't tempt him with some great Mephistophelian bargain, you know, like I'll give you power over art for your soul. Like that's usually it's like just get him to grumble and complain in his life and stare at a fire and waste everything. And, and pettiness is the great enemy. And I, like, I come to these shows with you. I come to the conversations that I have with people. I come to the books that I write as deep oases in the inevitable desert of pettiness that characterizes a good chunk of our daily existence. And listen, pettiness is fine. Nothing wrong with it. Got to go to the dentist. You know, you got to work out. You got to, you know, like these, these, these little annoying things. You got to floss. You know, I get all of this stuff. You got to do taxes. And yeah, yeah, there's lots of petty stuff in life. And that's fine. That's, that's life, right? But my God, I can't. I'm like, I'm like the opposite of a pearl diver. Like a pearl diver can go down without scuba gear and grab the pearl, but he can only stay down for a certain amount. And he's got to head to the surface, right? I'm like the opposite. Like I can stay at the surface for a while, but I got to get back down to the depths and art. Is the bathyscape that takes you down and you can actually survive down there. Because for me, when you, you know, you're in a relationship with someone, you're dating a girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, whatever. And, you know, there's petty stuff that happens. There's just thing, me, 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 right? You know, my, my wife tied it. I can't find anything, right? And, and there's petty stuff that, that happens. And it's so easy to cheese grate any block of depth you have through these little petty things and, and end up grumbly grumble brain you know just kind of you know, grumble 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 right and that's that's just that's a, a a massive kick in the nads of this incredible gift of life you know like i'm just going to grumble my way through the day you know and uh, uh, and all of that right and what art does is it yanks you to the important moments it yanks you to the deep moments it yanks you to the depth good art right the modern art is a lot of this petty 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 this kitchen sink stuff a lot of petty stuff but the really good art is about the depth and power of existence. And it reminds us that the sort of petty surface grumble brain that does chug along and help us with our daily life and help, help our daily decisions is 
the, the sufficient but not necessary part of life. Like, you know, you pay your taxes to stay out of jail so that you can think deeply about life. I mean, maybe you can think deeply about life if you're in jail, like I guess Martin Luther King Jr. did. But art reminds us to to step out of this tiny little conveyor belt of, of daily things and and have a deep and larger story arc and, and depth to our life because that's, I think, where the millennials get stuck. It's like, yeah, you can't get another video game. However, right? Doesn't, doesn't, there's no depth in video games. There's very little art in video games. There's visual art, yes, but not sort of real art. And that focus on the moments of depth and power in life allow us to remain deep, allow us to remain committed to truth and beauty and virtue. And that's, particularly for people who aren't religious, that's the only meaning we're going to get. You know, I go back to what you said about C.S. Lewis, which ties into this. And my favorite quote from the Screwtape letters is the devil, Screwtape says to his nephew, human beings imagine us spending a lot of time putting ideas into their head. They don't realize that our primary purpose as devils is to keep ideas out of their heads, right? <laughs> and that is exactly what you just said. And, and that brings up the, another thing we have to discuss. Uh, you, you ended with this just there. Uh, I really do believe that art and morality are the same thing, that, that the single best conduit we have to become moral people more than anything else, and that includes theology, because theology is primarily philosophical precepts, right? It's the philosophy of God. I think, you know, the Ten Commandments, and it's interesting to me, I always was amazed by the New Testament in the sense that Jesus didn't walk around Galilee handing out note cards with what you should do. He didn't give the Ten New Commandments, right? He didn't sit there and have a list of rules. He told, how did Christ communicate? Through art. He told stories, parables, right? right? You think about what a parable is. And they were the simplest form of storytelling. A man has a mustard seed, right? Bread, fish, stone, and water. I mean, he told baby stories. But for those who, as he said many times, if, you're, if you have ears to hear, hear it, what he was saying is what you just said. Are you deep or are you shallow? Do you take my story of the mustard seed and see it nothing more than a botanical story as a, a completely literalist and shallow? Or do you see through the ruse of botany to get to the broader point he's making about the nature of salvation? Christ himself did exactly what you said. He told seemingly superficial parables that were designed to reach the person who could feel and think more deeply. And to that end, and this is maybe where I'm going to ask, turn it around and ask you, to my mind, morality and art are the same thing. Uh, and a corrupted art leads to a corrupted morality, right? And, and a proper understanding of art humanizes, unites, and ultimately turns us into better people, right? And it's art more than anything else that does that. Well, I'm going to burst into tears right here, right now, and I'll tell you why. You've, you've, you've touched on the third rail of my entire freaking existence as a public thinker, which is, ah, I've always had in my mind, since I was a teenager, dissatisfaction with existing systems of morality. And not the conclusions, you know, Ten Commandments, I'm down with most of those and, and all of that, but, but the methodology, you know, the, the, the reason and evidence guys, like a, the faith has always been a, a challenge for me. Let's just put it as nicely as possible. So... I, 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 I cleaved to, to objectivism and, and, and yet I knew, I knew deep down, I knew deep down, you know, like you have this like splinter in the mind's eye, you know, deep down, it's like, okay, I claim that faith is not a good thing, but 
by gosh, I have faith in Ayn Rand's precepts because she hasn't proven it from first principles. Hasn't she? Did not did not make that proof from first principles. Oh, that which is good for man is like yeah, well, you know, the Obamas have bought a thirteen million dollar house in Martha's Vineyard, so they weren't particularly good people, right? So it's good for them, right? So I had this problem in the back of my brain for a long time, decades really, and then when I realized I could have some public venue as a, as a thinker, I sat down. I remember sitting there. I'm not going to get up from this table until I solve the problem of secular ethics. I'm just whatever it takes. Right. And it took a long time. <laughs> it took a long time. My butt went numb. And then I started talking about it. I've called it universally preferable behavior and it works. And this is like splitting the atom of philosophy. This is like the biggest goal is a rational proof of secular ethics. Right. So I thought, you know, I wasn't sitting there saying, here comes my ticket tape parade, you know, because it's bigger than going to the moon and back, in my humble opinion. It's uh, one of the biggest achievements. But I was like, OK, this going to ferocious debate and, and massive interest. And some people are going to grab at this like water in the desert and other people are going to grab at it like poison in their veins. And and but and it was like it just. Kind of came and went. And, you know, and, and people would debate me with it on the show and, and all of that. But it just didn't move people. Even though it's like, it's really good. <laughs> you know, it's really good. And you know what I hear the most, my friend? You know what I hear the most about what I do? People say, your analogies are fantastic. And I'm like, you bastards. Yeah. It's your stories, not your logic <laughs> you they care bastards, about. You bastards, <laughs> all of you. Bastards, all of you. I work for 30 years to prove ethics and then some stupid analogy pops in my head and that's what you like. Come on. And I was well, trying to explain something. I was, I was on a call just before we got on. This is a woman of very, very tragic history and she couldn't figure out how to escape it, right? And I'm trying to explain it to her intellectually and I know it's not connecting with her. And then I say, it just pops into my head and I say, you know, a bad childhood is like a burning building. You know, you, you fight the fire or you get out, but you don't just hang around. And she's like, oh, and I'm like, oh, come on. All of this intellectual analysis and everybody likes the burning building thing. That's great, too. And it's like, so I just, you know, I don't mean to pull the genie out of the bottle of my discontent, but it's like, this is annoyingly true. <laughs> I well, got all of this intellectual shit and people are just like, yeah, I really like that analogy about the burning house. I'm like, that was all. Think about all of the sermons that have been delivered in the last 2,000 years. Think about, I won't. I refuse. Think about, you can't make me. Think about all of the dogmatic arguments and philosophical reasons. And then think about how much more effective a single painting by Caravaggio of the suffering Christ has been to people. Think about how much more meaningful, right, a sculpture of Michelangelo's has done for truth and beauty and piety than all the collected lecturing of all the philosophers of religion. I mean, the reality, and I think this says something, I would qualify your angst for a moment. There are few people who can speak and win at a philosophical level. You're one of them. You're, you're, a, you're a philosopher who can move philosophers. And while that is a huge accomplishment, it leaves 99% of the rest of the world utterly unmoved. That's the reality, isn't it? 
Okay, I'm willing to accept that on the condition that you go out with a pair of pliers, a fork, and a taser and rewire humanity according to <laughs> nope. my preferences. That's all I'm asking. I nope. will accept everything that you're saying, the Caravaggio stuff and all of that. But you got to go out and fix people so they work the way that I want them to. Thank you very much. I, I guess – and, and, and I love the sarcasm. And I'm out. <laughs> and of course, as you of course know, and the sarcasm is if you want to reach them, you have to become more artistic and less philosophical. And, and that's what, that's where your hope is, brother. Because as I said to you before, that art and storytelling can be every bit as philosophical as the philosophers are. You just got to be more clever and more talented. Right? Can you? <laughs> wait, can't, wait. So instead of you going out to rewire the world, <laughs> my specific request for you you have to change. You're holding up a mirror to rewrite or me, me, me. Okay, but, but you understand, right, Seth? You, I'm, Seth. Oh, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to feign interrupt interruptions here at this point because it's becoming distinctly uncomfortable. <laughs> hey, Sorry, go I, good. I was about to point out something uncomfortable. Why in the world? You, you know, right, that your entire early gravity towards the theater was your nascent understanding of that truth. That, that for you, what you became as a philosopher was always filtered through the art first. And so oh, philosopher is like, yeah, it's second price because the lefties own the arts. That's right. Well, you, they, think I could, you think I could get anywhere in the arts? They, they own the arts, but they don't own art. How many great artists were not understood in their day who we revere now? How many great artists who suffered for their art only to find out that, uh, like Van Gogh, 100 years after he was dead, his paintings are selling for $90 million, right? So that's the thing, right, it seems to me, that... You you're an artist, man. I mean, you're, you're a playwright. You're a, you, all the things that you did as a young man, you, all your intellectual uh, uh, um, experiences and your development came through for you, particularly theater, right? It's why you're good at what you do on TV, because you have a theatrical air. When they say they like your analogies, when they say they, that's what they're talking about, is that right? You, you, they're telling you, Steph, I like you precisely because you don't sound like a philosopher. That's what they're telling you. <sighs> So embrace. I'm back to my grumble brain. It, well, but you were, but, but you loved acting, didn't you? I mean, you enjoyed it. I did. Well, no. Here's the thing, though. I mean, I was a bit, a bit too stuffed with my own words to be a sock puppet to the words of others. So sure. I think I'm certainly glad to have done what I did now. And I've just released this documentary, uh, Hong Kong. Uh, fight for freedom which i hope people will look at if you look for it on youtube you have to put my last name in otherwise they won't show it to you but in that i just uh, i hadn't we I, we needed a closing and this is you know there's no spoiler about this it's not like a, a, a fictional story so we needed a, a closer for the movie and you know it, it's tough to compete with you know scenes of rioters and you know getting a face full of, a couple of facefuls of tear gas and all of that but what i did was i did a monologue as if i was a um a lawyer speaking to the court of world opinion, making the case for Hong Kong. And that's, yeah, it's completely theatrical. Uh, it is, you know, your honor and may it please the court and all that kind of stuff. And it, the backdrop is is an overview of Hong Kong. We went to the very top of the mountain there. And yeah, I guess you could say that's my sermon from the mount. And that, 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 that to me is great art because it was not scripted. It was um, very passionately delivered and it's meaningful. And that's to me, really frustrating about the modern art. And so I appreciate that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sound like I'm moving on, but it really did annoyingly stick in my brain. Uh, it's, it's like one of the, it's like one of those, you know, the fake arrows, but it actually went through. So, um, let's talk a little bit about this infestation of comic books. Oh, Lord above what on earth is going on? Because 
it's not a fairy tale. It's not common humanity. They're freaks and aliens and mutants. And to me, what I loved about art, it's why I love The Fountainhead more than Atlas Shrugged and why I love Dostoevsky so much is it's, it's the everyday challenges that we need art to strengthen us for, like that challenge in the car with the woman who'd make me famous if I slept with her. And the movies like, you know, 12 Angry Men, there's a great Paul Newman old one called The Verdict. There, of course, is the wrestling with conscience that goes all the way through the book we talked about, Crime and Punishment. There's the Ayn Rand novels that you could sort of name it. And the problem is that those used to encourage, I think, people to have courage in everyday situations, which is where courage is needed. And the problem with the comic book heroes is like, unless you can throw a super tanker through a mountain, where does the courage connect to you? Unless you have superpowers, where does the moral courage connect you to? And of course, with Christianity, the fight for the devil, the pursuit of virtue, the expansion of God's grace and his word, that is the essence of what it is that you're doing, which is available to everyone. And my concern is these superhero movies are completely disconnecting people from everyday necessary courage and turning it into a CGI fest that's completely foreign and divorced from their lives. I think that's true. I think, you know, if you go back to the Silver Age comics, right, you go back to the 60s and 70s, you know, there was a real movement in those comic books to be not that, right? If you think about Peter Parker as Spider-Man. Peter Parker was not the ward of a millionaire. Peter Parker was not a, a superhuman guy from Krypton. He was a teenager, not even a man. He was a teenager who had a lousy love life and who was never got, got the short end of the stick and everything else. And so there was an attempt there to, to demonstrate that his powers uh, did not compensate for his personality, right? That just because he had these powers, in some ways they were more of a burden for Peter Parker. With great power comes great responsibility, right? Then they were a boon. I think what has really gone wrong with, now again, comic books are very juvenile uh, ways of, of representing art, right? I mean, I think they're for little, again, the little kids who are playing, they belong, comic books belong to little kids. Comic book belongs to the 12 and the 13 year old who still- I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but it didn't used to be the case as you talk about, so when I was a kid, I, I would I read comic books, and they were about war. They were about yeah. real people's lives. They were about real challenges. I remember one comic book I read. I remember it to this day. It was about a guy who who signed up for the, for the army, and they said, "You got to wear these boots." He says, "No, I don't like those boots. I'm going to wear these boots." And his sergeant said, "Okay, that's fine. Now just walk around all day and see how your boots do." Right? And they, of course, kind of fell apart. And he's like, "So there's a reason why we have these rules. These rules have been developed, and you need to keep these rules with you. These rules can save your life." So he kept the rules and he put them in his chest pocket and naturally of course a bullet that was going to hit his chest went through the rule book the rule book stopped it and he's like wow the rules really did save my life and and you know i, I remember that to this day like it's a very very complicated thing does that mean the rules are bad if the bullet had been two inches to the left what does this even mean like it's a very complicated thing but that was like real world stuff not that i'm in the army but you know it was not superpowers it was not aliens right. with tentacles coming out of their necks that can travel through time that's the and point that, that's the difference yeah, it is. That's the point, is that the superhero genre has gotten out of control. And I think the movies have made that much worse because, of course, the movies are going for CGI spectacle and they're not going for the moral. And, and what's happened with the comic books as, we move, as, as they've bifurcated since the 50s and 60s and 70s is now they've become less about the moral and the morality and more about the, achieve, the, the superpowers. And as we've said before, uh, it's, now they're becoming politically correct, right? They're doing to the comic books what they're doing to Star Wars. 
now you've got to have a female. You, you got to have Captain Marvel, right? And you've got to have now. There's all this clamoring for gay superheroes, and so Marvel said they're they're, they're going to be unveiling their new superhero who happens to be a gay lead. The same thing that's destroyed higher forms of art is destroying the lower ones as well. And so the problem with the superheroes is is that and the other thing you mentioned something about millennials and younger people. Um, by removing the idea of God from Western culture, particularly the Christian God, by consciously keeping it from generations of young people, uh, denying it in the public schools, ignoring it in art, and mocking it from our uh, academic pulpits, one of the things that the comic books do provide is a kind of savior figure that has now missing from our lives. Everybody wants to be saved, right? Uh, everybody wants a hero. And so modern heroism comes in the form of really buff uh, tighted men and women who will save us from things, right? And the fact that they're not completely human, they're mutants of some kind, just makes it more noble, right? We persecute them. Think about it. We persecute the X-Men, yet they still fight for us. It's like the mutant, it's the Christian story, right? Just Absolutely. stripped of all that made the Christian story really artistic, right? Stripped of that. And so uh, I think that the comic books, popular culture in general, uh, recognizes that what, what, what they recognize what we've lost. They've recognized those asp- uh, aspirations of the human mind and soul that are not being fed anymore. And their best approximations is what you're getting in movies now, uh, whether it's the cartoon movies or it's where the other stuff. And, it, it, and we see how wholly inadequate it is. I mean, our millennials have had more access to graphic cartoonism, right? They, they've, I, would, I would have killed in, the, in 1974 <laughs> for a really good Spider-Man movie. I would have been all for that. Now these kids aren't even reading the comic books because they can see it in the movies. And yet you see that with all of this spectacle, you've really lost something. You've lost that, that artistic core. As, wasn't it uh, Scorsese? Who was it that came out the other day and, and blasted the comic book movies? He was correct. It was somebody. Um, one of the great directors came out and blasted these things. And he's right. Right. And why he's blasting, it's not storytelling anymore. Storytelling well, is... Well, if it was Scorsese, I've got my own beef with him about, I, oh, good, another Joe Pesci, Robert yes, De Niro uh, movie with, with mobsters in it. Oh, he's so creative these yeah. days. Ooh, way to branch out. <laughs> so anyway, whole... I, I don't remember who it was, but the, 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 the criticism was valid, it seemed to me, because it, you're writing formulaic movies. You're not really writing uh, moving art anymore. You're not making art. You're just t- ticking certain boxes that every action film has to have. Um, and I, you know, I've talked to this you about this before, and a long time ago, a while ago. But you know, if you look at modern literature, if you look at modern art for the last hundred years, go back to 1900. One of the things that we lost, actually, in modern art, and I think comic books tried in a weak way to replace it, we lost the idea of the hero. Right? The the anti-hero became everywhere. The outlaw became the hero. The thug, the outcast, right, became the hero. And if you think about the great literature of the last 120 years, there's only really one place where you find a traditional hero. I think. In, in really great literature, and that's the Lord of the Rings. Uh, you think about the Lord of the Rings, it's the anti-comic book, isn't it? Because what it is, it's setting up those archetypal values, isn't it? I mean, you know, what Gandalf represents, represents versus what Sauron does. I mean, the, uh, you've got the, from the very beginning, you've got these poles. And the entire working out of the story of the Lord of the Rings is who is ultimately the hero. You got the wizards and the warriors, but it's the littlest, it's the weakest, it's the little hobbits, right? That got to get the ring back to Mordor. And you think about that narrative arc, and and Tolkien was very consciously doing this. He recognized in the modern world, with all of our scientific and technological developments, he he fought in World War I. 
which was the first really mechanized war. You, you think about what the Lord of the Rings is. It really is a lament uh, about the dehumanization of nature, right? Everything became mechanical. Everything became machines. You've got the Ents, right, who are these tree gods fighting the, the rock and stone of Saruman's uh, bogus castle. You've got that, those pre-environment, you've got those environmental battles that are working themselves out about what used to be virtuous and what the purpose of art used to be versus what it's becoming in a me- mechanized age, right? Post-World War I mechanized age. And so it really is moving to me to read that book because those medieval values in some way. It was a reason why both Tolkien and Lewis looked back to the Middle Ages, right? Not because of the lack of technology and the, the, the brutality of their short lives, but because of the, the grand artistic narratives that held for a thousand years in medieval Europe, and they were unifying ones. They were spiritual, they were sacrificial, uh, they were moral and ethical, uh, and they produced great art, and they produced great literature. Uh, and, and so L- Tolkien in the, in the sort of sterile 21st century, 20th century was trying to replace them a little bit, and that to me was really the, one of the last great times that you had that kind of expression. Oh, I remember Lord of the Rings taught me an enormous amount, not least of the value of loyalty, the relationship between Frodo and Samwise. And and although there's class elements and I get all of that, but Samwise's devotion to Frodo is so deep and so powerful that uh, it really, really moved me and raised the standard uh, of what I thought about in terms of loyalty. Okay, let's let's close with this question. And it's a big question, so we can we can chew it for a while. Can we survive without actionable art right so we have art but the art is not particularly actionable the superhero stuff is not actionable the nihilistic stuff is not actionable you know the the joker uh, the new movie the joker it's not particularly actionable so in the absence of actionable art can we survive people have substituted video games for art and video games have no connection, no connection whatsoever. Not even a, like even the superhero stuff. You could say, well, standing firm in the face of blah, 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 right? But there's no actionable art in uh, in video games. No actionable stories. It's all really base of the brain. It's below even the mammalian level in general. It's really twitchy stuff at the lizard brain level. The cultures that are thriving are the cultures that have the strongest narrative narratives. The cultures that are dying off are the cultures that have lost narrative and substituted hedonism for narration, which is, you know, I've said before on the show, we can't be less than human. We, we say, oh, he's acting like an animal. It's like, no, we can't be animals because we're humans. All we can be is inhuman. We can be human or we can be inhuman. We cannot be anything else. And it is human, as you say, to play with stories of depth and power and meaning. We in the West facing the greatest existential crisis in our history, I believe, at the moment. Is it possible for us to survive without stories? My answer is no. And and the older I get, the more I come to recognize that what happens when you remove the the great humanizing narratives of Western culture is fascism. I would argue that fascism is a symptom of the death of the master narratives, right? The, mm. archi- the archetypal unifying narratives. Because what did the Nazis have to do, for instance? They had to destroy the old narratives and withhold them. They had to burn those books, right? And why were they so, I mean, there were many reasons why they were racist against the Jews, many foolish reasons. But I think one of the main points that the Nazis did not like about the Jews was the great arc of their narrative, the chosen people, right? I mean, what was, you think about the degree to which Judaism and the arts 
and the history of Judaism is deeply embedded in some of our most profound artistic creations is because of the master narrative, right? Which is an incredibly beautiful one that of all a, a whole world who had forgotten God, God singled out this generation, this people, made of them a great nation who followed him, gave them some of the great truths that still animate what's best about Western culture, right? And so I think that there was a kind of culture envy there too with regards to the Jews. Uh, And so I think that the more we pull back against these stories, the more radical leftist progressives demean the great books in favor of purely politicized uh, narratives, the more fascist, the only response is fascism, right? And and communism in this way is a kind of fascism. I'll give you one last quick example. Um, I have a colleague at the university who teaches kids lit, children's literature. It's a course that's required for all the people who want to be education majors. All the people who want to be English teachers have to take this course. And her entire premise is you should no longer for any reason teach the classics to little kids. They are old-fashioned. They are racist. They are, they are uh, homophobic. They are transphobic. You should only teach in your elementary, middle, and high school classes this new brand of politically activist literature, anti-bullying literature, pro-transgender literature. In other words, literature that's not literature. It's just propaganda, right? And so that's and, what and some I, of that propaganda may have good intentions maybe. and may have reasonable outcomes, but nonetheless, it's still not art. It's not art. And so that's what I'm fighting right now as the Shakespeare professor on campus is that I get kids in my Shakespeare class then who already have been through that class, education majors, and they don't understand why stories matter. Right? And so to me, I see, it at, I see it on campus. When you pull the stories away from these kids and all you give them instead are these very politicized narratives, they become antifocates. They become intolerant. They become bigots. Right? They, 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 they hate stories because of who wrote them. Well, Shakespeare's a white guy. What does he have to say to me? But when you've got professors telling them that, and so in my, my final statement, uh, at least in the opening of this last part of the discussion, is this. I really do believe that it's not a coincidence that those cultures since 1920 or maybe even 1850 who have sought complete control of human minds have sought to do it at the expense of art, right? We, I, I cannot point to a single piece of Nazi art not one that has any redeeming value. In the long march of communist, uh, you know, the communists, I can find nothing, right? I mean, now you could maybe make an argument that they still had great ballet, but that ballet, they left it alone. They didn't make the great... Yeah, they'd inherited that. Right, and they didn't turn ballet into simply communist propaganda. They allowed the beautiful art of the ballet to continue under communist re- rule because it wasn't threatening to them. But painting and sculpture and literature were completely decimated. And so you mentioned Dostoevsky. I, I remember in the 70s, people were smuggling in to Russia, along with blue jeans, copies of the Brothers Karamazov because the only copies the Russians had in their libraries were copies where the hundreds of pages that related to God had been ripped out. They were reading Dostoevsky without the really Dostoevsky stuff. And so, yeah, I think fascism, honestly, Steph, is, is, is what happens to human beings. And you can call it by any other name you want, but those fascist tendencies are what happens when we withhold and destroy that, that, that primal artistic need in human beings. A larger narrative that we subjugate hedonism to, because this, of course, is the great, there's a, a, a I don't, Obviously, I'm no fan of fascism at all, but there was a very powerful piece of propaganda that was floating around on the web for a while, which was a picture of, of three, three men. And the first was a completely starved man, and the caption was communism. And the second was an obese man, and that was capitalism. And then there was a muscular man, fascism, right? Now, that, that's a powerful statement. Again, massively opposed to fascism, but that's a powerful 
statement. And where the criticism of capitalism, not just of the economic actions, but of the, the effects upon our capacity to subjugate hedonism to a higher standard, right? Because hedonism does lead to the death of civilization. But when you have more than enough, hedonism is almost inevitable. And that's why I did a speech in, in Florida not too long ago where I posed the basic question just in passing, can can humanity survive any form of success? It's a, it's a really, really big question. Why do you sacrifice the pleasures of the moment? And, and for what grounds? Well, it has to be for a higher narrative. Otherwise, it just feels like self-flagellation, like you're a monk who just likes to hit himself, not because it's some sort of higher calling. And that question of how on earth do we subjugate hedonism, the mammalian pursuit of mere physical pleasure, you know, yeah, yeah, loose and liberal sexuality when you're young is, is a great playground and it's lots of fun, but it smashes people up like you wouldn't believe. It destroys their capacity to bond. It can physically harm them through the massive increase and spread of STDs. It causes abortions which break people's hearts. It destroys our capacity to enter into sustainable marriages and so on. So like all of that fun stuff. And you think of the rising rates of, of you know, really terrible obesity and so on. The hedonism. How do we tame hedonism? It's really, really tough. You know, one of the things they talk about with parenting that's really tough. So when I grew up as a kid and I wanted something, you know, nine times out of ten, my mom would say, well, we can't afford it. And she was right because, you know, we were we were kind of dead broke. Now, I was reading an article about parents who are wealthy. It's really tough. It's really like you live in a mansion and the kid says, I want something and you can't say I can't afford it. That's a really so when you are in want, you have restrictions that are placed upon you by math and facts, and bank accounts, when you have excess, so to speak, how do you restrain materialism and greed and hedonism? Now, of course, the answer in the past was, man shall not live by bread alone. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that was a way of restraining materialism and saying, this is a passing world, this is a distraction. This everything between birth and death except for virtue was petty. And that's how we did it. And then we got excess. We gave up on the restraint of hedonism. And the hedonism, which is the beast that is in the China shop of our history, is currently taking down the whole damn thing. How do we tame this thing? Well, we can't say we can't afford it, because for most people, it's like, well, the government just borrow and print money or whatever it is, right? We got tons of money sloshing around. What do you mean we can't afford it? What do you mean we can't afford Medicare for the poor? We can afford it. We can afford these wars, can't we? We can afford bankers, bailouts. We can afford all of that. So why can't we afford all? And these are all very, very basic questions. Hedonism is what we desperately want from a mammal standpoint, but it desperately undoes our humanity. Well, you, the one you left out, I think you answered your own question, and, and the one you left out is my favorite. What profited a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul, right? I would argue yeah. that the soul of a man is communicated to the man through art. And so these are tied up. It wanted the, the soul and the, and the artistic, the purpose of art are tied up to the same purpose. Art is what shows a man his own soul. 
Art is what shows us that aspect of us that supersedes the animal. Uh, and I think that that's what's so valuable about it. And the answer to the question is, is you have to instill in kids again. You have to go back and stop teaching kids that they're animals. Stop teaching kids that all you are are highly evolved animals. Stop it because that's their desperation because they look around. They're not stupid kids. They look around and they see what animals are. They look a lot around and see how many animals are starving in the world. And why would you – in solidarity, throw your hat in with them, right? If the purpose, as you said, biologically is to survive and to be as comfortable as you can possibly be. And so the, it is the entire premise of materialism that not just saps the soul uh, and, make, and takes that part of us that's not merely an animal, the soul, and degrades it, but it, it's the death of art, isn't it? And what is fascism, by the way, to tie this back to that? Isn't fascism just more or less a radical Darwinian approach to human culture? Look at what the animal kingdom does. If we're going to be animals, we should be the most successful and dominant animals. And you weed out the weak ones, right? Nature, mm. Mother nature takes care of the retarded, the sick, the lame, the halt. They don't live. They don't get to – the weak don't reproduce. I mean in a way, all Hitler did through Nietzsche was what Darwin said, right? Poor Darwin. He didn't, he didn't mean this. But Hitler looked around and said, okay, his, the, the scientists of Germany in the 1930s, who we laugh at now – but in the 1930s, German scientists were among the most well-regarded scientists in the world, right? Many of them came and built the atomic bomb here. These were good science. Many of those social scientists argued there's demonstrable proof that Jews and gays and Eastern Europeans are all mental deficients, right? We've this measured all the phrenology stuff. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. eugenics. We've measured their skulls, right? And so if that's true, and we don't believe in God because the Nazis really didn't. They believed in their own occultism. They were, certainly weren't Christians. If we believe this, the fascist said, then shouldn't we treat human beings the way nature treats animals? Because we're no different than that. And if we believe through our flawed, weak science, if we believe that this race is inferior, well, in, in, the, in the uncivilized world of the jungle, nature would have purged them herself. How, do we not owe mankind the species? And, and you know where you see this, Steph? You see it today, that eugenics, with this idea that if a young mother has a 30 or a 40 or a 50% chance that the baby she's carrying might be a Down syndrome baby, what's the recommendation, right? Maybe you ought to abort that child and try again. We're talking even without 100% surety. And the argument there, and I said this to my, my university classrooms all the time, how many of you know Down syndrome people? And they all raise their hands. Well, do you think that they don't deserve to live because their quality of life is not as, as high as yours intellectually? And not one of those kids agrees with that. Was it just two years ago? Iceland was bragging that there were no Down syndrome babies born in the country all year. They were triumphing over that. And how did they achieve that? By aborting any baby that might be Down syndrome. I mean, that's the same kind of eugenic thinking here in the, 19, in the 2010s, 2019s, that basically Hitler – and we're still making the argument, right, that because those kids aren't normal, those kids probably wouldn't survive on their own. They require more money and more care than normal kids do. Aren't we doing them in the world a favor, not letting them be born? So you go back to the 1930s and you jump forward to that kind of stuff. Nothing has really changed here. And so well, for me, and it's even worse if, if the argument that I make when I'm sort of pro-natalist is that people say, well, I'm not sure we can afford the kids. Mm -hmm. And it's like, hmm, you know, we're 
pretty much the second richest generation in history. I, I don't know that that's we, a we massive afford, issue. We can afford college for everybody, universal health care, but we can't afford those kids. No, I, I get the point you're making. And I, I go back to my, my larger point is to tie fascism back to this, right? That mm-hmm. when, when, you, when you get rid of all that art does, right, spiritually, intellectually, morally for human beings, to lift them up and above themselves, to show themselves what they are in reality, to emphasize those aspects of life that trans- supersede the material, you get rid of that. And then life is cheap, right? And again, I, you look at the, the, the most brutal killing machines in the last 200 years. All of them have been um, atheist cultures, socialism, Marxism, and communism, and fascism. I mean, look at the, look at the, the, the toll in human bodies. Those worldly-centered, materialistic, don't believe in anything beyond uh, the, the, the physiological kinds of cultures gave us. They don't give us much art. They do not like individuality. They collectivize everything. They do not like free rights. They are very censorious of art. They shut down anything. Look at, look at you, you got China bans Winnie the Pooh now because somebody said Winnie the Pooh looks like President Xi. That's what they do, right? And for that matter... What modern Chinese painter, sculptor, artist, playwright uh, in the last 70 years of communism do you point to and say, well, there's a world contribution? Well, no, but you can't. Everybody's too terrified of the mob. Right. Everybody's too terrified of the mob to create anything profound and original. That's right. Because and you, because you know that the state will stomp on you. Because, because to create— well, No, no, the, the state—well, in China, the state, yes, but here in the West— Here in the, the West. State. We, we have horizontal enslavement in the West. Right. It's, it's the outrage mobs— that uh, that shut that's shut true. people down these days, and that's what everyone's terrified of, and that's why we can't be original. The other thing, too, of course, with your point around fascism and the sort of base mammalian thing, is that human beings are relatively undifferentiated if they're not allowed free expression. Like you think of those all, all this. I mean, the, we're not like fifty times the height of, of each other, right? Where, where you get genuine human differentiation is when there is free expression, like. You know, uh, the, uh, Shakespeare is like an infinitely better playwright to some degree than, than anyone else, so to speak. Right. And, and that differentiation is important, not because we want to sort of just look up at, at Shakespeare and, and kneel before him, but because when you see a human being with that depth of perception and communication, it shows you just how powerful we can be. And some of that power is going to rub off on you. And some of that capacity is going to rub off on you. And some of that ambition is going to rub off on you. You think of these, these frozen people in Soviet bread lines. They all look kind of the same. right? all dress in the same shabby clothes. They can't differentiate themselves that much except for the sociopathic pursuit of political power. But it is in the freedom that we get the heights and the canyons that allow us to aspire. And, you know, we are... A, a spelunking and, and rock climbing species, so to speak. We need to have something to aim for. As we've lost the divine, we also get this relentless egalitarianism that is attempting to erase the peaks and valleys and have us live on this two-dimensional flatland of bland unambition. And that, to me, we, we, are, we didn't get to the top of the food chain because we're not an aspiring species. And what do we can't aspire to be superheroes? We can't aspire to bring video games to real life. At least I bloody well hope we don't because then you end up like Columbine. But what do we aspire to? What is our yearning pointed at these days? Well, nothing, really. And that's where we're not going anywhere other than slowly down. Yeah, I agree. And you look at the apex predators. Look at a shark, right? Sharks have been around hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of years. They haven't changed much, haven't had to. They're apex predators. But 
in the same way you could argue human beings are on land. And there's a world of difference between us and sharks, right? Sharks are content to feed and to breed, all right? It doesn't, that's all, that's the life of a shark, and it was a life of the shark 250. I always ask this question. You know, we had lizard brains. We had dinosaur brains for 250 million years. And by the end of it, their brains were, no, were not necessarily any larger than they were before. But right. th- think about in 100,000 years where the human brain is gone, right? We are something different. And that something different is what you just said. It's, I don't know what the best word to define it. If I say the word spiritual, people get pissed off, right? Because that implies religious. Uh, but there's something clearly about human beings that is non-animal. There is something transcendent about us. There is something about us that's bigger than our mortality, that's bigger than the sum of our parts, that's bigger even than the, the, the complex organ that is our brain. There is something holistic about human, humans as individuals and humanity of co- collectively. Call it memory, call it whatever you want, imagination, call it what you want. But that's transcendent and that's universal. And if that's true, then, then that open, does two things. Number one, it means we cannot live by the world alone, can't live by bread alone, that, that it's, the whole world is not worth our souls if, if we use the soul to define that thing. That's number one. And number two, it also means that there are other possible universals that we can tap into. See, this is the thing. When you say there are no universals, right there you're a liar because you just made a universal statement, right? It's basic uh, solipsism 101. I, I get to say that there are no universals universally, and the minute you argue against me, right? So this is the problem. And I think that's what this culture, we're afraid of this now. If there is, if we are bigger than what we are, if there is something beyond this, if there is indeed realms of thought or truth that cannot be accessed solely through our science or our logic, then we have to sacrifice. Then we have to change then there are things that we should prioritize besides ourselves. And our selfish well, and, culture and doesn't want to do it. And is, is a is lie. That, it is a lie. It has to be a lie, right? Because again, as I tell my university classes, a shark will eat everything it can eat. If you give a shark enough food, it will eat and become a hedonist, right? But how many of us are happy with it? How come hedonism doesn't make us happy? For all of our wealth and all of our luxury time and all of our freedom and all of our money and all of the, 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 the to be 24 years old, and to have spent the first 20 years of your life sitting in a school classroom, not having to dig in the dirt for your food or, or help schlep water back and forth, to do that is itself hedonistic, I would argue. And so, yes, I think that's right. I think we have seen what hedonism is. We have culturally embraced it. It leads to radical suicide. It leads to abortion. It leads to addiction and opioid abuse, obesity, all those things you said. We're trying to fill spiritual holes with material remedies, and it just makes us miserable. Well, of course, if uh, hedonism worked, the happiest people in the world will be those who won the lottery, and right. it's almost always the exact opposite. All right. Well, listen, that's, that's a great chat. I'm really, really glad we, we got through this stuff. It's a huge topic, and I really, really appreciate the, the depth and clarity you brought to it, and I also do want to invite the audience, you know, leave us comments, suggestions, stuff that you want us to to go over. Um, I think that these these two brains can cut a castanet back and forth and generate some good heat and light. So uh, just give everyone, if you can, your website. Uh, mention again what it is that you do, and and we'll take it from there. FPEUSA.org will get you to our main site. I'm a university professor and an author as well. Uh, and I would say you brought it up. Uh, let's maybe at some time uh, next couple of months, let's tackle the screw tape letters. That's a big, Absolutely. big repository. Love to. All right. Well, thanks, Dr. Pastor. Really a great pleasure as always. And a very Merry Christmas to you and yours. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year.
Well, thank you so much for enjoying this latest free domain show on philosophy. And I'm going to be frank and ask you for your help, your support, your encouragement, and your resources. Please like, subscribe, and share, and all of that good stuff to get philosophy out into the world. And also, equally importantly, go to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show, to give me the resources that I need to bring more and better philosophy to an increasingly desperate world. So thank you so much for your support, my friends. freedomain.com forward slash donate.